0: Hello, folks. This is your host, Tammy Tucky, and you are now listening to The Tierra Talk Show. We bring you rare interviews with the makers of Disney magic. Whether they be singers, actors, imagineers, animators, they have all made their mark on the Disney name. Be sure to check out the show notes, other episodes, contests, our social media pages from Facebook to Twitter, and more on our official website at www.thetierratalkshow.com. Are you looking to plan and book an upcoming Disney vacation? Contact the Tierra Talk Show's official travel agent, James from Destinations in Florida, by visiting destinationsinflorida.com backslash tiara for a free quote. The link is also included in the show notes on our website. All guest opinions are theirs and theirs alone and do not represent the opinions of the Tierra Talk Show or the host. The Tierra Talk Show is not associated with the Disney Company. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode and from all of us here at the Tierra Talk Show have a hoop de doo day. Listeners, thank you for tuning in to our 73rd episode in which we are celebrating the second anniversary of the Tierra talk show that premiered on August 3rd, 2013. I'm joined by three of our show's past guests to discuss the 1987 Disney animated film favorite, The Brave Little Toaster.
1: Okay, this is David Newman. I wrote the soundtrack for Brave Little Toaster.
2: Hi, Jerry Reese here. Uh, I've directed The Brave Little Toaster, co-wrote The Brave Little Toaster, and uh, storyboarded uh, along with the rest of my team and uh, did a few miscellaneous frog and squirrel voices and uh, sang for John Lovitz when he was too busy on Saturday Night Live.
3: My name's Rebecca Reese, and I worked on The Brave Little Toaster. Uh, I had some different hats that I had to take off and on. I was uh, involved with um, experimental animation, I was an animator, a directing animator, and a story um, uh, cleanup supervisor, and not all at the same time. (laughs)
0: Well, each of you was very busy with your part in the creative team for Brave Little Toaster. And I can tell you several people listening now to this interview are squealing with delight because many of us, including myself, got to see Brave Little Toaster when we were younger on VHS tape. You know, it had a theatrical release, (laughs) but it was very well known throughout the VHS tapes and laser discs. Oh, my goodness. You know, it just it's so wild to come back and watch this film again and and talk about it. I can't even imagine Jerry and Rebecca, of course, are married. But Jerry, Rebecca, when was the last? time you got to speak with David.
2: Gosh, well, the last time I heard you talk, David, was on the Tiara Talk Show. So, oh, uh, oh. I met you here. <laughs> when do did, when did we have dinner together?
1: Know, was, uh, it's 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 been a while. Yeah. yeah,
3: We had Sadly, dinner in sad, her, uh, oh, sad, yeah. ocean view. Because that,
1: that was one crazy experience, that Brave Little Toaster, that whole thing. I mean, for, for me, it was just an absolute revelatory experience. I learned so much doing that movie and it was such a, it's one of the highlights of my life doing that movie, working with Jerry and Rebecca and you know, writing the music and the way it all went together and how weird it was and ending <laughs> up in Japan and the whole the whole the whole thing, and I know yeah. for Jerry it was probably a million times, and Rebecca, a million times more um, crazy and difficult, but we all loved it so much.
2: It's funny, Rebecca and I have talked about it, that that looking back over our entire career in the industry that that was the the most creative freedom that that any of us felt. Um, There was you know the fact that it was sort of an outcast in a way at the time it was independent and such a low budget and you know we just all cared about it so much and Tom Lohite was so supportive of us in the creative process and just the distance from the spark of an idea on any given day to it being in the movie was the shortest, le- least interrupted ever. And it it still is kind of startling because so much of it was, was born with that kind of daily freshness and, you know, with, without sort of nitpicking.
1: I remember Jerry, like that you would every few days when, when you started to get animation instead of, uh, I guess you had done like you you would send storyboards kind of on um, video, but every every once in a while I would get this beautiful animation, and it would just make <laughs> the whole thing come to life. And then then all the metaphors that you talked about the the toaster with the reflection and the lamp with the you know all the sort of simple metaphors that everyone all the characters sort of brought to the to the to the table. How simple and elegant and and profound it was, and then how dark it was at the end. Their their you know ride into the abyss, and then their yeah their saving. It was it was all just so like for me coming from my background in classical music and then into film music. It was just such a, a profound experience and something that was so on the surface simple, but it it, it just. It, it it was such a metaphor for different aspects of life, and of course, not not without saying anything specific. It's it was so profoundly influential from what's come after. And that takes
2: me back to to my first experience on it, and I, I really appreciated Tom Wilhite's approach to this. You know, I had just you know I had worked closely with Tom at the studio, and and I was the only feature animator that left those ranks to go work on Tron with Tom Wilhite. And so, you know, we had really developed a rapport. And then I was gone. Brad Bird and I were up north with Rebecca and trying to get um, the spirit off the ground. And we were trying to set a whole different course for animation, do things that were not tied down to Kitty films or to always having the same sort of formula we wanted to to get into more bigger cinematic filmmaking and I'd just been pushing on that for it was just coming up on five years and Gary Kurtz who was producing that uh was going through some financial difficulties and that seemed to be running out of steam financially and so you know I let people know that I was going to be back on the LA market and sort of looking for a niche and Tom got in touch with me immediately and he said look this this was going to be at the studio John Lasseter was the person I had attached as director back then I had Joe Rampton Brian McEntee developing with the team and so that's sort of how it started but John is gone from the studio and Willard and I are leaving the studio and we want to take this property with us and I'd like you to read the novella where it started and you can come in and bring a fresh eye to it. He said, uh, you know, I'm not expecting you to do the version that we were doing because, frankly, I was told that it would make a nice short, but a lot of people still don't believe it would make a full feature, would support a full feature-length story. So I'd like you to reread the novella where it started and then go in and take over development. I don't have much money, but I can give you the ability to develop, write, and direct this movie and really make it your own. So I said yes, I read the novella, I went in and and had four weeks to sit with Joe and, and Brian and Tom just really sat back and let me take it from there. So he really let me put my own fingerprints on it then and work with those guys who were so wonderfully creative but there were major things, like I walked in and look at Brian McEntee's, his sketch of the junkyard, which at that time was going to be in the middle of the movie. It wasn't like the big finale graveyard thing at the end where cars would get crushed and sing worthless, like none of that was even thought of. It was, it was an adventure along the way where they went through and survived a junkyard. And so on my first day, I was like, oh my God, we got to move that to the end of the story. That's, that's the, the graveyard for appliances. And um, the owner was an adult and, frankly, had kind of abandoned them. And so, you know, I was working on how do we make their owner blameless? Well, you make it the kid that they imprinted on and the family moved away. So he's, he's blameless. And having the toaster actually do something brave to save that kid who's grown up, like all of that stuff was new stuff that I plugged in with uh, Joe and Brian in four weeks of doing index cards on the wall. And Tom just supported that whole thing. And the only only thing he brought to the table where he said, this is a card I'm laying on the table that you have to keep, and I'm so glad he did, was David Newman and Van Dyke Parks. He said, they're they're attached, they're on board, you're gonna love them. And uh, so that's that's the only thing that he had prearranged. The rest he just said, I need somebody to drive this and make it your own. So,
0: and how long did each of you individually work on this project? For, for how many years? Because an animated film usually it takes about two to three years to fully get it completed and released.
2: Eighteen
1: months hmm. for Rebecca and me. For me, it was just a couple of months. So, but I'm just a post
0: production. And Rebecca, which specific characters did you get to animate for this film?
3: Oh, it was a lampy and radio. Even though I kind of had my fingers in all the scenes, because, uh, you know, at some point during the film, I came on, I had to leave a couple of roles and uh, dive into being um, a cleanup supervisor. So I actually had to uh, work on all the scenes, but uh, right from the beginning, Jerry just said, well, which characters do you like told him the radio and, you know, I I could just see in my head how he was going to move. And then Lampy, who could not love Lampy, and uh, he said, okay, they're yours. Go ahead and let's, no one's ever made a lamp uh, move before a radio, (laughs) so let's see what you can do. And I had never had that freedom before. I mean, before toaster, i I had been in animation for quite a number of years and had gone through four years of college. and but i i I always felt like I was struggling. I hadn't really wasn't happy with my animation or where I was. I, I just seemed kind of floundering. i I didn't know where I was going with it or why I was doing this even. And then suddenly, with Toaster, everything made sense. i I was using all my knowledge, everything I had learned and from art and animation. Suddenly, every little drop I was being able to use there as far as animation and drawing, design, um, illustration, cleanup, uh, everything, directing um, the scenes and working with people, it all just came together. And, and then um,
2: experimentation. I mean, I remember, I remember you talking and with you and the other people that were doing experimental animation, like... Okay, how do you give a lamp hands? And you were so inventive in dealing with a single plug becoming a hand for gestures and all kinds of crazy things.
3: Oh, that was so much fun. It really was, especially laying out the scenes, just uh, doing the main poses. And um, uh, some of the scenes I did myself animated, and some of them I would um, do the main poses and then work with an animator on completing it. And that was so much fun just uh uh, coming up with uh like with the radio you know with his antenna how does he use it the timing of it um and also the the radio not having a mouth i was adamant also that he should not have a mouth i was really supporting (laughs) jerry with that and and i'm so glad because yeah that was the one that
2: was one of the arguments that tom and i had good natured argument but uh tom was really worried that radio would be the only character that didn't have a mouth and eyes. And I went, well, he's got a face because he's a clock radio and his speaker is his mouth already. I mean, he's got a way to to speak. So uh, at once he saw the test animation that Rebecca and, and her team were doing, then he was convinced. But you know, something that was really interesting as far as the the tone of the film, the warmth of the film. I think it was really critical, and Rebecca can speak to personal experience with this a lot is, you know, when it was supposed to, quote, go overseas, there was an option laid out in front of me early on where that, you know, there were a number of producers uh, attached to the film, and, and a couple of them were there just going, eh, send it overseas. Yeah, something will come back. And I went, no, I love this story. We all love these characters. We want to make something we're proud of. We're going with it. 10, 12 of us actually went with, we prepped it for six months and then went and lived in Taiwan for six months with James Wong and his studio. And we had three interpreters full-time and hundreds of people working at the studio and then came back and worked six more months here. And just the tone of the film, you know, i think it feels very sort of americana but we had a partnership with so many really amazing people in taiwan we lived together and they uh the owner of the studio had said i will give you a price break if you instruct my people because i want them to be more capable when you leave and to be sought after by the you know the western animation community and so tutoring of the of the the people there and then the classes that Rebecca was talking about teaching people, uh, she had interpreters and taught classes for assistance over there, in addition to doing directing animator work herself. We didn't send it overseas. We, we went overseas with it and lived with them, and we all made a film together.
3: And they, they wanted, all the artists really wanted to learn. I mean, they, they weren't resisting at all. They worked late on their, you know, and weekends because they wanted, they wanted to. So, you know, I really um, could feel that, that they were very proud of what they were doing. It was just a joy to work with them. It really was.
0: I don't think there's ever been a really uh, behind-the-scenes featurette to this film that I've seen Mm -hmm. before. And uh, not a lot of information, but a lot of people love learning more about the film. I see Tumblr facts all the time. They post photos and images of, you know, sketches or things from the film that are behind the scenes. I love seeing the recording session behind the scenes. Photos because right. I think that's so much fun. You have a really big, talented cast coming in to voice these characters. And Jerry, I had no idea that you were John Lovitz's uh, singing voice yes. until like two days ago when I was <laughs> listening to the song, and I, I, I thought it was him. So I always thought that I got a well, kick out of that.
2: <laughs> well, it's funny, and, and David, you talked me into doing that. I was I was scared out of my mind to do that. I, I had just gotten into the habit because. What had happened, was, which was also pretty crazy, it was good crazy for Lovitz, but it was bad crazy for me, is he got cast in uh, to be on Saturday Night Live, that, that first season that he was cast, after I had auditioned him, and had written the part for him, and before we had recorded. And I wasn't quite finished writing the script, because I was, I was writing a few pages ahead of the team. So I'd write a few pages, And then I'd hand those pages out to the storyboard artists, and I was one of the storyboard artists artists as well. So then I would switch to boarding along with the rest of my team, and then eventually I'd be running out of pages, so I'd run back and write some more pages. So it was during that back-and-forth process that John got cast, and his agent was just like, oh, he's gone. See you later. And I was like, what? So I called John. I was like, please, I... You wanted to play like five characters. And I cast you in the movie. I wrote it specifically for you. I tailored it for what you do. Please work with me. So he's like, well, you know, I'll, I'll try to work something out. I don't know. So um, he booked one day. And I got together with Don Ernst, my editor. And we did, at Buzzy's Recording in, in uh, Hollywood, we did one marathon session uh, and the night before, I finished writing the script uh, and had Rebecca read the pages to see if they made sense. And then rushed in and did this one marathon session where John Lovitz recorded everything for the entire feature. And then he was gone. And that, and that got everything recorded. And then he was gone. And he was on the show. And later on, we it came time for us to record the songs. And I had been... I, I love ensemble recording with the cast. And, but John was missing, so I'd always sit in and I'd do the John voice for any given scene, just to give the rest of the actors something to feed off of. So during the live improv, I'd be there uh, to to provide that. So when it came time for the songs, and John could not come back from New York to do that, couldn't join us, I was just going, oh my God, what do we do? And then David goes, what are you talking about? You're gonna sing it, you've been doing his voice for months. I was scared, and David, what was that like?
1: no it well it wasn't all, actually all that much, was it? It was like it's city of light he sang in and the movie yeah I, I little parts and everything, but yeah. you had it down totally it was it was it was it it, it it was seamless i don't think anyone would ever even know that it wasn't him so i, I you know um i I don't actually remember that that Actually, having that discussion, I think you were always <laughs> going to do it because well, I think, there was I think no alternative. Uh, I, I
2: know, I remember you su- assuring me that Susie Allenson, the uh, the voice coach, okay, was right. was going to help me reach the it's notes and
1: stuff. You know, right, right. Because we had a we had a music person. Right, right. It, it, and we did all those songs in like a day or two. I think it was, every everything took a day or two.
2: <laughs> hey, uh, David. Well, while, while we're on here, I'm going to ask you a question that came to me from a, a, a fan. Gosh, about a Two weeks ago, somebody wrote and was trying to to find out who the individual singers were for Worthless. My I, recollection was Susie brought in a group she, and then just did. sort of winged it on it was, the day.
1: It, it was a group of um, uh, of session singers. I, I couldn't even remember the name. I, I I bet I bet there's some way to find out. But but remember Jerry, you had to direct them all. And it, remember yeah. that. In, that was my first experience with Toaster, because I th- th- this was way before. I wrote the score or anything. This was just recording the songs, and right. we didn't even record everything. We just recorded rhythm tracks, and right? But basically, it was acting. It was it was getting yeah. the singers to act. So you basically had to direct the whole thing, right? And everybody. And we had a great band. They were great session players. We yep. had yep. great singers, but still, they needed they, they were characters. So they yeah, needed and I remember you're going to animate everybody.
2: Yeah, and I remember her like you know, like well who's gonna be the race car and who's gonna be right. the hearse and who's gonna right. be and, and she'd like try different people and go, Oh no, you you of, jump right. in. And,
1: is it a high voice, is it a low voice, is it a you know, a rock and roll voice, is it yeah, all that. And then you have to direct, you know, what they're gonna do
2: for what and you're it
1: gonna was, animate it, in the future, right?
2: Yeah, and yeah. it and it was so much that um the the adrenaline pump that I think went with, with so much of the show was we arrive there, and like you said, you, you know, you, you've got the studio and you've got the singers, and it's going to happen in a day. So there's not a bunch of fiddling, and you know, you're not going to be back tomorrow or next week or next month, yeah. and you try to like get the bullseye. It's like fiddling goes away and the bullseye takes over. I have this vivid memory of Susie talking to our blanky voice, Timothy yeah. E. Day, and you know, I mean, he looked he looked younger than he was, and he sounded younger than he was. And he was he was very precocious. He he understood everything. But I saw Susie and other people would sort of talk down to him like, how, Hi, Timmy, do you know our, do You know your place on the page? You know, they'd be sort of kind to him in a very kiddie way. And I have this vivid memory of, of Susie and some other people looking for where they were. And Timmy goes, excuse me, you're on bar 47. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like... And and they went oh thank you Timmy and I'm like no 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 you don't realize what just happened he did the adult thing don't talk to him but it was so amusing to watch and he took it all in stride and he just uh, he, he was amazing when we were recording the the you know the voice uh, uh, the non singing parts just the acting role uh, we all started calling him one take Timmy because he just was uncanny for understanding the moment and he really wanted to talk about it. I know it's a cliche when actors say well what's my motivation. But he really wanted that. And he would ask me like, what's the blanket doing? What, you know, what's gonna happen next? Whatever, he, you know, he would get into it. And I remember the, the crying scene where he cries at the top of the stairs and people said, what did you do to that kid? Did, what, did you like hit him or whatever? And I said, no, I, we had a discussion. And I was talking to him about just being heartbroken and, and he, he tried uh, a rehearsal for me. And I said, when you cry, I want it to go through the double glass so that the engineer hears you crying and goes through the wall and the people driving on Melrose (laughs) hear you crying. And he's like, oh, got it. And then we started recording and he just wailed. And that that was like his take one, you know. And uh, so Thurl and the rest of them just called it, started calling him uh, one take Timmy. And then uh, Deanna, you know, we were done with her. For one of the sessions and i said great day you know deanna uh see you tomorrow and she walks out of the recording booth and then um like a half hour later we're still working with the other actors and i i look and i see her face through the window she's sitting on a bench with the recording engineer just looking in sipping coffee and i went in and i said deanna what are you doing you you could go home and she went yeah but i i kind of feel responsible for the Group, you know, I'm I'm turning into the toaster. And I mean,
1: they, for me, Jerry, your description, j- just what you described, is so profound for somebody to write to write music to and to be involved in. It's so clear what's going on. You know, th- th- everyone has this sort of place, and then there's a story, and it has right. a beginning, it has a a conflict, and it has some sort of you know resolution. I, mm-hmm. I just I can't think of anything as clear and simple as this movie. That the the way you guys made this movie happen. Well, I just was I, so happy to be.
2: And I and I loved you're, how your. Like, you know, I was amazed how your music made it bloom and just be real and the emotions to be tangible and and deep and clear I as worked, well. And
1: I worry that my music made it like too big in a yeah. way. But but I I just. It seemed like such a, a, a profound sort of like a metaphor for, kind of the way human beings with you know using appliances yeah you know, well relate relate to each other.
2: David Edelstein, you know, with the, I think it was with the Village Voice at the time,
1: he wrote about all of that stuff.
2: Um, when he saw a screening of our film at a festival, he. He was the only writer who wrote a long review and got into depth about us as human beings feeling like we don't want to be outdated. We, you know, issues of abandonment, not wanting to be last year's model, not wanting our warranty to run out, um, wondering if we're still needed. I mean, he got into all of that stuff and said, I, it may sound kind of weird to you that I'm saying this about an animated film, but, but all that the story levels are, are there.
1: And way, you know, all before, us... way before anybody else was doing that, I mean, this is like eons before what happened well, with animation happened.
2: Well, y- well, you know something else that I think was really people sort of take it for granted now, but it was very weird at the time. Is none of us making the film went, oh, what, you know, we're going to make this thing for kids. We were making it for ourselves, and we were in our you know twenties, and so we were making it for twenty year olds at the time. That approach and more improvisation is, is really commonplace now. But at the, at the time,
1: wasn't. it yeah.
2: wasn't. And something else that in the animation world was, was pretty unusual at the time is we sort of there were a whole group of us. And, you know, Rebecca and me and Randy Cartwright, who'd had, gosh, he'd had like 10 years of experience, I think, as a Disney feature animator at that point as well. We all kind of looked at each other and went, well, why not put all the emotional depth in something that looks cartoony? Why not? And it doesn't have to suddenly become Bugs Bunny if it looks cartoony. It can have emotional reality and have a cartoony style at the same time. Why not? And so I think that marriage was, was pretty unique
1: at the time. And you know, Jerry, for me, just in, in, in post-production, essentially, I just saw it, I saw it live before my eyes. I, I saw it develop before my eyes you know i get i get storyboards and then i would get animation and it would just it would just it would just bloom and sparkle <laughs> and blo- you know and 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 blossom and, and you remember all, the all the, the and all the moments jerry the soft mm-hmm. moments you know the, the 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 you know the night you know there are all these moments it you know it's it's essentially a picaresque story you know of mm-hmm. it's a road story you know yep. and 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 you know action happens and then there are all these like quiet moments of reflection where they all you know that thing where Lampy tries to understand what's what what is the scene where he's he's trying to understand
2: it's interesting I had I did an an AMA and asked me anything on on reddit and that came up somebody had asked about that moment but asked also about the flower which comes before that And they were like oh my god it broke my heart the wilting flower you like you killed me with that what what was that about and that led directly to that tent scene it's like, you know, the night before, they're in the thicket, everybody's kind of, you know, radio's drawn in a circle, nobody comes into my space, everybody's sort of separate. And the poor little Blanky is the insecurity Blanky, and he's going around to try to get a cuddle somewhere. And even Toaster has had it that day and, and m- pushes him away. And you wrote that beautiful piece of music when we pan up from Blanky cuddling alone in the dirt. Because even Toaster had pushed pushed Blanky away, and then we go up to the next day where they're you know they go into the meadow. They finally get out of the thicket into the meadow. I had the Toaster purposely bump into the flower that had exactly the same yellow color as Blanky. It's an innocent like Blanky. It mistakenly thinks that the reflection in Toaster is another flower that it's fallen in love with, and toaster can't do anything to explain and when it wilts it's just seeing this soft yellow vulnerable thing wilt and it and it can't do anything to rectify it the next moment you see Blanky being like dragged down in a hole by the this mice and it reaches over and pulls Blanky to safety and scolds them and protects Blanky. And then that night in the woods, in the, in the tent, Lampy's noticed, like, what's this thing? You know, wh- what's going on? And, uh, and there's that exploration of, of why Toaster has warmed up, if you will, to, uh, to Blanky. And, and, so he, and, and he equates it to understanding the glow that he felt when the master repaired his bulb for the first time. And those dominoes were, you know, I tried to carefully lay them. So even if you don't directly understand it on a, an emotional level... The dominoes fall, and
1: and all the care taken with the story, it, it mm-hmm. it's all about this. I mean, that's that's what we that's what human beings respond to, and it does pay off. And it's so dark when, when you get to the the the, the, the junkyard, and it, it, I mean, it couldn't be more dark. The way that before, right before, mm-hmm. the end. and even the end, it it's saved and everything, but they were so close to annihilation yeah yeah and and, and, and there's a certain feel a, 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 about the preciousness of life and and all that i'm not to be hyperbolic but no but, but you know what david it's it's, it's the, the way the story is is constructed is it's 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 in a way a descent into hell yeah and and maybe you're right maybe it's that we're all we're all going to be used things we're all going to be used up at some point you know there's the, so- your
2: your warranty runs out, and, yeah. You know, uh, and and it's does somebody treasure treasure you, you know, for for, for what you used to be and the nostalgia that comes with you, you know that that I the, the term you're using dark. This was really interesting, Deanna, and I did a Q and A with uh, a college crowd at Cal State Northridge, and they had, I think it was juniors and seniors, and they had Screen Toaster. And did q and A Q&A with us afterwards, and it was startling for Deanna and I to hear that word used again and again and again by that crowd. And I've gotten it from fans as well. They use the same word you did. They say dark. They'll go. They, they would say it scared the crap out of me. I yep. loved it. Yeah, and, what she, and what led you to make such a dark movie? And, they would, and Deanna and I would look at each other and go, well, we didn't think of it as right, right. dark. We just thought of it as being real to the characters when they're sinking in the quicksand. You know, we didn't do any wink to the audience. Like, oh, don't worry, they'll be saved. And when Blanky, the Timothy E. Day, did that little performan- performance where Toaster is, is trying to get him to hang on. And just before he goes under, he looks at her and says, I'm not scared and with a quivering voice. He's just trying to make her feel better before she dies, you know. And it, we just went, well, that's what it would be like if you were there. We we didn't try to make it extra dark. It was just that's you're, what you're, it would be.
1: I I think also when I think about the music, as as Toaster falls at the junkyard and gets mm-hmm. the gear and saves saves them, mm-hmm. the, the the music doesn't really like. Um, because I was thinking about this, um, I think some of that is the fault of the music. It's structured from that to where they're, you know, going, going off to college, right? Is that where they're going off to? The- yeah, yeah. The, uh, right. Nothing resolves in the music. It just sort of yeah. kind of ends. It, it, they say they, there's no like triumphant, like really happy music at the end. It's all it's all kind of now he's going to college, so that's kind of a death too. The, the, the kids well and the mom is
2: saying happy. goodbye there's goodbyes happening right. and
1: it, it's it you know now that you talk about this it's kind of interesting to think about because we could have set the music in a different way to be much more upbeat and happy when you know toaster saves the day but it didn't seem appropriate you know, to it, the, it, you know
2: it wasn't appropriate and'll and I'll tell you something else I just loved when you stayed in that on un- unresolved State and I, I always love that you stated, and I thought it summed up the situation in this story and a lot of other stories too. And in life, you were saying that, that when there's a sort of a happy moment, it's there's a little bit of, of sadness in that happiness because you know it's not forever, it, as That's sweet enough. as a moment can be, it is at the same instant it's happening, fleeting because it'll be a memory soon. And who knows how long? So there's that that bittersweet touch. I think is is essential.
3: Dave, David, I remember when we were going over flying over to Japan because you were going to be um, recording the the tracks. and you hadn't finished writing all the nope. music yet. And, and you I, you were yeah. you were behind Jerry and I, you and Chris, and Jerry and I were in front. And I remember hearing your pencil sharpener, yep. <laughs> your little pencil sharpener, and then you would write something and then you would say hey Jerry, how does this sound and, then and you'd, you'd put, a put a head the headphones, headphones on me headphones on Jerry. <laughs> and play it as we flew you were writing
1: the whole way and i wrote yeah. 10 hours when i got there too i didn't oh I, my God. I didn't understand what i could how you know how many minutes i could write a day i just got i got i got behind it was it was a absolute peak experience for me <laughs> to, to
3: do that well we were all i think just doing things uh, by no. instinct, yeah, yeah, yeah. just but yeah. from heart, and by instinct, and it worked. Yeah. And that's was and so, I learned so yeah. much on that film that from then on, anything I did, I didn't approach any, everything so analytical anymore. I really just let my my whole being, my heart, just just let it go, and and that just seemed to work. With you know, from then on, just learning from Toaster that that's how I worked, and that's how it worked best, and that's how we got the best results. And, it, and so I kept applying that to anything I did, and uh, that seemed to be the magic answer.
0: And the film is approaching its 30th anniversary in 2017, God. which is <laughs> pretty fascinating. I, yeah. I, I don't think you guys think it's 30 years. I sure don't. And since the film has been released, unfortunately, there have been a few members of the creative team and cast who have passed away. Yep. Most notably uh Phil Hartman and Joe Ramft. Did you guys have any individual stories a lo- uh, any funny stories about working with them behind the scenes?
2: Well, I it I I remember well somewhere there's a few people who witnessed this. We were doing other things uh prior to working on uh Brave Little Toaster like with uh, Joe Ramft was in a film that Tim Burton and I co-directed uh called Luau. It was this silly home movie that whole, whole bunch of animator friends from the time were were in and uh so joe played a guy called IQ that was uh, uh stumbling around in a beach movie and uh and joe uh in those days was quite a bit bigger he got healthier and stronger when he was later but he was he was he was not only tall but quite large at that at that point and we were just in different cars uh heading somewhere for lunch during that era and we were up at the top of Barham Boulevard, in, about to go across the, the 101 freeway. And we were at a red light. And I just, it, it was just like improv. It's just, I saw him a couple cars over. There was a, a lane between us. So he and I start making this, yeah, you want a piece of me kind of thing. And uh, so I opened my door to fake threaten him. And he, he opened his door and he gets out. And we, we knew that, of course, the green light was coming. But, you know, I'm, you know, five, six and he was 6'5". And so people in, you know at this intersection are watching giant Joe head towards me like he's going to tear my head off. And me looking at him like, oh yeah, just try it. And then the light turned green and we like, oh, we ran back to our cars and got in and drove away. <laughs> so uh, so anyway, so a, a, a few dozen people in L.A. saw improv theater with me and Joe.
3: And, uh, imagine, you know, the 6'5 Joe in Taiwan. I mean, everybody is you know, like Jerry and our height. And he was, he would, people would just stare and follow him because he was like a giant. But um, the whole place was designed, you know, kind of miniature, small, doorways, everything was small. And poor Joe was always hitting his head and his forehead on everything. And he'd come in in the mornings and he'd had welts on his forehead. And one time he came in and he said he had uh, hit it so hard against, I don't know, something. I, I think they had remember. signs
2: lower and stuff, too.
3: Yeah, everything that it he had a permanent scar right in the, on the top of his head in the middle. And people told me from Pixar, they said that Joe would always, he was very proud of that. Over the years, <laughs> and it was like a battle scar. He'd say, "Ah, hey, you want to feel my scar? When I was on one, I during toaster, I got this injury, <laughs> and he'd always bend down and let people feel like this big knot in the middle of his forehead, and that was from ramming into something in toaster. And he, he didn't bother get stitches or anything. He just kind of let it grow over. But uh, he but I remember proud he was of those injuries.
2: <laughs> but I remember he was you were talking about him being considered a giant there, and I remember he he felt. It was so sweet, he, he kind of got his feelings hurt. He felt like people thought he was a freak and he you could tell he felt kind of bad. And we were like, Joe, it's, they admire you. They think it's spectacular. This is, you know They don't think you're weird. And Phil was just such a treat. He was such a trooper to just try anything. And there was no prima donna aspect to Phil at, at all. He would come roll up his sleeves and want to work and want to discover and want to make moments happen the best they could. And no sort of ego thing about him at all. And he just, so it, it made it a complete treat. You never, never stumbled over uh, any sort of political things or, uh, you know, it was just about being creative together. And, and it was just a treat. And, and you know, uh, I'm not sure people realize that he did both the air conditioner and the sort of Peter Laurie hanging lamp.
3: And and Jerry didn't. Um, gosh, someone else uh, was it? Mindy Sterling?
2: Oh, uh, uh, Yeah, Judy. Judy Toll.
3: So, oh, I'm sorry, Judy Toll, not Mindy Sterling. Judy yeah, Toll, well, right?
2: Judy and uh, Mindy did the two-faced uh, sewing machine, and right. I believe uh, I believe Judy has passed.
3: It was sadly. Judy, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that her Judy Toll sister. Um, her sister's kid actually went to the same school that our sons did, and we were having a fundraiser at the school, and I had donated uh, a Brave Little to Toaster Cell, and it was at this auction, this fundraiser, that someone said, oh, there's somebody that wants to meet you here, and I didn't know who it was, and it was she introduced herself. She was Judy's sister, and when she saw the toaster cell, she just freaked out. She couldn't believe it, and... She said, well, I'm I'm her sister, and, and I said, oh, my gosh, well, you know, my husband and I, we helped create the film, and uh, how is she? And she said that she had passed away a, a couple of years ago from breast cancer, and so I told her, I said, look, if you don't get this cell, don't worry. I will give you others. <laughs> so I think she ended up being the highest bidder, and she got the cell, and then I got in contact with her and gave her another cell, and had Jerry sign it, and we gave it to her mother. A bittersweet story,
1: right? Hey guys, I have to pop off. It's been wonderful talking to you. Great talking to you guys too.
0: Yes, thank I'm, you so much for coming yeah, on I'm the show.
1: Don't don't stop. This hey
0: Dave, let's do another Italian dinner.
1: Uh, absolutely. <laughs> All right, see you guys later.
0: I can't thank you guys enough for coming on the show, and I wanted to add um, a fun little game. I usually have my Fab 3 questions I ask my guests, but I've already (laughs) asked them to you guys, so we already know your answers. But I thought we'd do something called a pixie dust lightning round. I wanted to resurrect this idea. (laughs) Yeah, Well, I wanted to resurrect this idea from my old show. Basically, I'll give you two things, and you get to choose what you would rather prefer between the two. So, for instance, if I said Princess Aurora... Or Cinderella, you would choose which one you'd prefer between the two. And you don't need to give an explanation. We'll have ladies go first, so Rebecca will go first. And then, Jerry, you can just follow suit. There's uh, five of them in total. So we'll go ahead and ask. So here we go. Disneyland or Walt Disney World? Disneyland.
2: Uh, Yes, Disneyland. I I just feel like there's an intimacy, intimacy to it. You can go into New Orleans Square and in some of those little back alleys and stuff and just completely be lost in that environment and not see anything else. And, um, you know, no big wide open spaces. It's uh, I just love the intimacy of it.
0: Captain Jack Sparrow or Captain Hook? Captain Hook.
2: I, I would agree, Hans Conrad. Mm-hmm.
0: It's a small world or Jungle Cruise? Jungle Cruise.
2: It's a small Jungle Cruise. I would blend them both <laughs> and uh, you would be... Going through the, uh, the, and and the song would be going, and they would all be singing in the jungle, and then you would throw yourself in the crocodile's mouth.
0: (laughs) I know Captain Hook would not want to do that. (laughs) (laughs) Princess Ariel or Princess Snow White? I think Ariel.
2: Yeah, I'd go with that.
0: And finally, Second Star to the right, or When You Wish Upon a Star? I think When You Wish Upon a Star.
3: That's a hard one, but I'm going to go with uh, Pinocchio and Jiminy Cricket.
2: And, and I'm going to go with second star to the right there's just just kind of a longing in that that appeals to me
0: I love it, I have to thank you again for coming on the show and listeners, I have links below to our previous interviews with of course our guests on this show for our anniversary, thank you David Newman thank you Jerry and Rebecca Rees for coming on the show to talk about Brave Little Toaster and also for a fun celebration of our second anniversary of the Tiara Talk Show listeners, check out their websites they're below in the show notes and I cannot wait to have you guys on again I, I hope maybe another special brave little toaster event will happen here in the future and we'll have you both back on the show and David too. <laughs> Alright,
2: we have mini stories that you that are different from those you heard tonight.
0: There's no time for fuss and a fight
1: as we travel the land. And I'd be satisfied just to be not denied to reside with some pride Or a ride to the city, the city of life.
3: your hats you devil dogs because the master blaster of all time is gonna give you a soul injection